Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 28 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. It's my pleasure to introduce the fifth and final speaker in our, in our fall series on rebuilding. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times and a regular contributor to the NewsHour with Jim Lair and NPR's All Things Considered. He was born in Toronto, grew up in New York City, and graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in history. He has been a contributing editor at Newsweek and The Atlantic, and senior editor at the Weekly Standard and the op-ed editor of the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Brooks is the author of two books which he describes as comic sociology, <laughs> Bobos in Paradise, the new upper class and how they got there, and On Paradise Drive, how we live now and always have in the future tense. During this historic election year, a frequently asked question at the proverbial water cooler has been, did you read David Brooks this morning? Today, you can hear direct and uncut his post-election musings on the critical issues awaiting our new president at home and around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, David Brooks. It's uh, somewhat humbling to be in a, a room this big and a crowd uh, this big. I haven't been in Minnesota since the Republican convention, uh, which introduced us to Sarah Palin. And for now, ever, when I think of the Twin Cities, I will think of Sarah Palin. You two are. <clears throat> um, she, she is. Uh, not the most important woman in my life from this area. My wife is from Minneapolis. Uh, uh, we met in college, and on our first date, uh, we established we had the same Hubert Humphrey poster on the wall. Uh, her, her father was a man named Tom Hughes, who was friends with Don Frazier and Walter Mondale, and came to Washington with Orville Freeman, and worked in the Minnesota Mafia throughout, uh, throughout Democratic administrations. Uh, and she would describe her home here in Minneapolis and her really where her family's from, Detroit Lakes. And uh, as she would describe Detroit Lakes for a kid from New York, I was thinking, Detroit Lakes, is that like Newark Gardens? It was sort of <laughs> hard to imagine, but um, a kid who'd never seen a cow till he was 16. So this was a different world. Uh, but we were married and remain happily married. And being married to a woman from Minnesota has meant a couple things. First, I have no say over any aspect of my life. Um, second, and such is the influence of Minnesota on me, uh, the radio listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm actually six foot two and blonde as a result. <clears throat> uh, for the people in the radio, I have no idea why they're laughing. It's, it was a factual statement. Um, it's also a pleasure to follow a Minnesotan Tom Friedman, my colleague, uh, to this spot. Uh, Tom, uh, some of us live in the shadow perpetually of Tom Friedman. Uh, I, our offices in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times 
I have Maureen Dowd on one side and Tom Friedman on the other, uh, what I call Ego Alley. Uh, and and I, I, Tom is always around the world and I was once in the Middle East with him and one of our colleagues had the line that going to the Middle East with Tom Friedman is like going to the mall with Britney Spears. So, uh, bigger. Uh, we, we are actually not only neighbors uh, in, uh, in the office, but at home. His home is, is quite a short distance from mine, though his is a little bigger than mine. Uh, once we were driving by with my son, who was then 14, he pointed to Tom's home and he elbowed me and he said, same job, Dad, same job. <laughs> So it's a pleasure to have a pseudo-homecoming of sorts, and it's a pleasure to see the kids from Southwest High School up there. I'll be talking to you guys, and the rest of them can just try to keep up if they can. Um, uh, now, we come, uh, we come, obviously, at a tremendously impressive moment in American history. To me, it's a pivot, a pivot away from things, uh, and a, a series of multiple, a confluence of pivots. And the first, and the one we've been talking about the last week, is the pivot of race to elect the first African-American president. And I don't know about you, but I've been in many rooms with uh, men who I thought were sort of hardcore and emotionless and have seen them broken into tears at random moments in the past week. And I think whether you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, this has had a huge effect. And personally, I think it shows that there are certainly racists in this country, but this is not a racist country. America's not a racist country. And it wouldn't have been. The second thing is that it's the end of the long economic period of prosperity that really began in 1983 and had only two short, shallow recessions. And it was a great era economically, but it sowed the seeds of its own demise. It created a culture of, of debt, uh, a lack of thrift, an erosion of thrift, a presumption that prices would always rise, home prices and asset prices would always rise. And so that period of economic boom is also over. Generationally, we're also at the end of something. I think the end of the baby boom era that began in 1968, where baby boomers had such a dominant role in American politics. Uh, the baby boomers have turned out to produce two presidents. I think they were both disappointing a bit in their own way, but Barack Obama is a, a man who was seven in 1968 and says very consciously in his book, Audacity of Hope, that he thinks he has a different mentality from the people formed by the 60s. And then finally, we're at the end of an era of conservative dominance. I grew up in the conservative movement, more or less. I, I was born to a liberal household. My parents took me to a B-in in Central Park in the mid-1960s, where hippies would go to just be. Uh, and one of the things they did was they took a wallet, uh, took their wallets and threw them in a burning garbage can to show how, much, how little they cared about money and material things. And I was five, and I ran up to that burning garbage can because I saw a $5 bill in there, and I <laughs> grabbed it out. That was my first step over to the right. Uh, but uh, but it, it, I don't care if you're liberal or conservative, the, the rise of conservatism is an inspiring story of ideas. People in the intellectual wilderness who built a series of ideas and really had a tremendous effect on the country. And, but that's over now. It had its course. And we're no longer in a conservative era. So we're at the end of these things. The what, what comes next? Well, that depends, and first, on character. The more I cover politics, the more I come to believe that personality and character matters most. I asked a friend recently who served, who was an academic and now serves in the State Department, what's the one thing you've learned being in government that you didn't know when you were in academics just studying it? 
He said, I used to think personality and relationships were 75% of government. Now I realize they're 98% of government. It's just tremendously important. Uh, and so I've spent two years covering the presidential candidates, and I can tell you they're all emotional freaks of one sort or another. Uh, they have what I call Lageria dementia, which is they talk so much they drive themselves insane. Um, they all will invade your personal space. Uh, when you're talking to a high-level politician, they'll grab your head or your shoulders. I had dinner with a Republican senator here in St. Paul at the convention. He had his hand on my thigh the whole time. And so, uh, I, I actually once remember seeing uh, Dan Quayle and Ted Kennedy meet on the well of the Senate. I was a reporter press gallery up above, and they met and they hugged and they laughed and they had each other's hands running them down each other's backs and their faces were about three inches apart and they were sort of grinding and laughing and <laughs> I was like, you know, get a room, I do not want to see this. Um, so they're, they're strange creatures, but they actually do care. Uh, you wouldn't do that job unless you really cared for the country and thought you were doing good. It's just not that glamorous. And I have a woman I covered named Deborah Price uh, as a member of uh, Congress from Ohio, actually just retiring. And she was in tough races. And when you're in tough races, you run these incredibly vicious ads at your opponents and they run them at you. And one day her 93-year-old mother called you and, sa and said to her, Deborah, I want you to know I'm ashamed of you for the ads you're running. And when I spoke to her after the race, which she won very narrowly, she wasn't bothered by what had been run at her. She was embarrassed by what she had run against her opponent. But if you don't win, you don't serve. And so these are the character tests candidates face. And you have to say, looking back on the past two years, Barack Obama has passed most of the character tests. I started covering him in the Senate before the cherubs would sort of bring him down into his appearances. <laughs> um, and I think we've seen over the campaign what a lot of us saw when he was in the Senate, a series of qualities which I think will shape his presidency. The first is the perceptiveness. People who work with him all tell stories of how perceptive he is. My story concerns a series of columns I was writing in the, a couple of years ago, and I was attacking the Republican Congress for spending too much money. Uh, and then I'd thrown a few sentences attacking the Democrats just to make myself feel better. And, and one morning I got an email from Obama that said, David, if you want to attack us, fine, but you're only throwing in those few sentences to make yourself feel better. So, um, uh, it was impressive. The second thing one notices about him is the, the intellect. Uh, my anecdote about that is I was interviewing him one day and getting nowhere, he was cranky, and I asked him completely out of the blue, and it's fitting in this setting, out of the blue I asked him, hey, do you ever read Reinhold Niebuhr, the 1950s theologian? He said, yeah, I, I have read Niebuhr, and I said, well, what does Niebuhr mean to you? And for the next 20 minutes, he described a perfect summary of Niebuhr's thought, uh, which is a subtle thought about how you use power even though it corrupts you. And believe me, there are not a lot of senators who can do that. In fact, with all due respect, there are no other senators who can do that. Uh, 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 and, and, and so for someone who's, who's going to have to grapple with incredibly complicated ideas and unprecedented circumstances, I find that impressive. The third thing, and we've seen it during the campaign, is the incredible calmness. And the story that I think illustrates that was told to me just recently by a friend who uh, works at CBS, Bob Schieffer hosted one of the debates, and if you notice during the presidential debates, McCain would come out there and write very furiously on a piece of paper. 
What Obama did, apparently, was when a question was asked, he would just draw a straight line on his piece of paper. And so this fellow grabbed the piece of paper after the debate, they'd left the stage, and it was just a white piece of paper with straight line, straight line, straight line. And that, to me, is symptomatic of the calmness that he has maintained through all of this. Uh, and he has gathered around him, I think, a very impressive people, a group of people very pragmatic from my point of view, uh, some of the best Clinton people, some of the best non-people, and they are all very nice and they work together. When you're in my business and people criticize you, if you criticize the campaign, they'll call you up the next morning, usually about 6.30 a.m., uh, and they'll tell you what a complete idiot you are. Um, when the Obama people would call, it would be like, David, you're, you're, we love you, you're a, a great writer, it's so sad that you're a complete idiot. Um, so, uh, uh, that, would, that would make you feel good. Um, and so th those are the strengths that I think he'll bring to the White House. Now, I, I'm a journalist, and I'm going to tell you some of the weaknesses, too. The first was he was a mediocre senator. He may not have put the time in or the effort, but senators judge each other by how hard they work on tough issues and how many tough votes they take. And Obama didn't do either of those things. Now, you can be a bad senator and a good president. They're different jobs, and many of us would be incredibly bored if we were in the Senate. But that just remains a fact. He was not impressive in the Senate. The second is the nature of his political ambition. He is obviously, as they all are at that level, an extremely ambitious person and has risen very quickly through life, I think, without, and sometimes without really engaging the institutions in which he's involved. And I mean the University of Chicago Law School, even his community organizer role, which he only did for three years, state legislature, and the Senate. And I think that's a cause for concern. And then the third thing, and this to me is the thing I look for the most and worry about the most, is his self-confidence, which is extreme. Uh, and, you know, if I was, well, he was born seven days before me, and if I rose to become president of the United, elected of the United States, I'd be pretty self-confident, too. Nonetheless, humility is tremendously important in a leader. And just in the current issue of The New, of New Yorker, there's a quote from Obama, which something he said in 2007 when he hired a young man named Patrick Gaspard who was going to work for him. And in this interview, Obama told him, and I'm going to read the quotation. This is Obama speaking. I think that I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. I know more about policies on any particular issue than my policy directors. And I'll tell you right now, I think I'm going to be a better political director than my political director. Well, that's a level of high confidence. Um, and nobody knows that much. And so that, that's the weakness that I look for. Now, he is going to be faced, and his whole administration is going to be faced immediately with a challenge which members of his administration, of which I am, have not been faced with in their lives. And that is the challenge of scarcity. Our whole adulthood has been spent basically in times of prosperity. And that apparently is coming to an end. And the federal level, that's going to mean probably a $750 billion deficit next year, probably $100 trillion deficits in the years after. It's also going to make, make for fierce combat over the remaining resources. How does he deal with that? And that's come most due in the debate they're already having with the transition team and in Washington over how fast should he move. And this is a tight debate. Some people want what they call the Big Bang Theory. You got a crisis, you only get your 100 days for once in your career, so go for everything. Go for a stimulus package, 
go for an energy package, go for health care, go for the middle class tax cut, do it all quickly, get it all done, be bold, don't be cautious. The other strategy is do it in two stages. People do not trust government right now, even though they elected a Democrat. Build some trust with the stimulus package, build some trust with the energy plan, and then do the really hard things, energy and health care. Uh, and so uh, these are the debates, and it's, it's going to be up to Obama to make this crucial call. There's no debate in the Democratic Party over the policy right now. It's over the how bold to be. And personally, having watched the health care debate and having watched energy not get done for 30 years, if you take the complexity of these issues, I think it's crazy to do it all at once. I just don't think there are enough hours in a day and expertise in the country to do it quickly all at once. But that is the decision they will have to make, and I think from the body language I read, I think they're going for the Big Bang Theory. Try to do everything as quickly as possible. The second big tradition and the second big challenge he will face, again, this is economic, how to enhance the safety net while preserving the dynamism of the economy. He's going to have to spend a lot of money. Everyone agrees on that. How do you do that without raising long-term interest rates? How do you do that without throttling the entrepreneurial spirit and creating bad incentives? for the economy. And that too is a problem of scarcity and there's a problem that begins today. In Washington right now, they're debating whether or not to bail out Detroit. And this is an incredibly tough issue, hard to figure. Bailing out Wall Street was one thing. That was bailing out a system, the capital markets that make our creative destruction process work. Bailing out Wall Street, uh, Detroit is a different thing. It's bailing out certain companies Moreover, certain companies that the market has judged are bad, failing companies and have been failing for a long time. And so how do you, some people think you should just let them declare bankruptcy. Some people think, no, you should give them $25 billion, which will entail giving them another $25 billion, which will entail onward down the road. And there are no good answers to this. But to me, a cornerstone of our system is that we let the creative destruction process of the economy work and then provide a safety net people for people who are the victims of it. And we may be stepping over that line, I think, if we start protecting industries and companies too much. These are immediately tough challenges that Obama's going to face. And before I conclude, I just want to talk quickly about the Republicans, the other side. Uh, because you think the challenges that Obama's going to uh, face in power are tough, the challenges for the Republican Party are just gruesome. Uh, if you are a member of a shrinking demographic in this country, you're probably a Republican. If you're a member of a growing demographic, you're probably a Democrat. Uh, if you are an older, white, less educated male voter of 70 years old, you're probably a Republican. That's not the group you want as your future, with all due respect. Um, the Republicans are losing Hispanics. Uh, they're losing young people by two to one, and if the same group of young people vote for the same party, three elections in a row, the historical record is they stay with that party for the rest of their lives. Demo Republicans are in danger of losing those people. Republicans are in danger of losing college-educated people. I wrote a book on the so-called bobos, the bourgeois bohemians, the people who drive Audis, Saabs, and Volvos so they, because they can have a luxury car so long as it comes from a country hostile to U.S. foreign policy. Um, <laughs> people who shop it, well, I won't do all the job, I'll do one more. They shop at uh, Trader Joe's, the, 
progressive grocery stores where all the cashiers look like they're on loan from Amnesty International. And, uh, <clears throat> and people buy these, uh, the sort of socially enlightened uh, snack foods like what we have in our house, veggie booty with kale, which is uh, for kids who come home and say, Mom, Mom, I, I want a snack that'll help prevent colon rectal cancer. Uh, and so, those people were once sort of a subgroup of a she-she subgroup in American culture. Barack Obama raised $600 million off that group. And they've spread out to the suburbs. Barack Obama not only carried the inner ring suburbs, the more affluent established suburbs that Democrats have carried for a couple of elections, he won the outer ring suburbs. George Bush carried 98 of the 100 fastest growing counties in this country. That used to be the Republican base. But if you look at these fast-growing counties in Virginia, places like Prince William County, in Florida, the area around Orlando, in Denver, Barack Obama got, a, in suburban Denver, 100,000 more votes than John Kerry did. Uh, in Chester County, Pennsylvania, an ex-urban county outside of Philadelphia, Obama won all that. And so this is the growing part of the country. And so the, the, uh, the Republicans are losing everything. And to me, the essence for Republicans is to think dramatically. It's not a small thing that needs to happen to get back in power. It's a long, dramatic change, and I think it's going to take a long time, and they, they're not ready for it. They're still in denial. I think John McCain is a great man. Uh, and when you talk to John McCain, you report a story based on something he told you off the record, you know that thing is true. John McCain would never lie about those things. And I, I think he's a great man. But for all his personal greatness, he did not have a campaign with a serious domestic policy agenda. And he left the party with no serious domestic policy agenda. Sarah Palin aside, I thought he should have picked at the time, and I think in more and ever, ever more now than ever, he should have picked Governor Pawlenty. Because Governor Pawlenty has a serious domestic policy think, thinking. And secondly, he has this Sam's Club Republican idea which is the core of the Republican Party is the working class. George Bush won the white working class by 24 percentage points. The Republican Party's lost touch with those people. And Governor Pawlenty has a belief in using government in limited but energetic ways to give people opportunity. My overall view of American politics is that there are two parties, but there are really three political traditions in this country. There's a liberal tradition that believes in using government to enhance equality. There's a conservative tradition that believes in less government to enhance freedom. But then in the middle, there's a, what I call a Hamiltonian tradition that believes in limited but energetic government to give people social mobility, the power to rise. And to me, this tradition began with Alexander Hamilton, a poor boy who created the national economy so people like him could rise. It continued with Abraham Lincoln and the early Republicans who created the Homestead Act, the Land-Grant College Act, uh, the railroad legislation to give people like Lincoln, poor boys, the chance to rise. And the battle in American politics is over that tradition. Who can be, there's equality and there's freedom, but who is the party of social mobility? Who is the party that gives people from less fortunate circumstances the tools to rise and compete? And the Democrats have won that battle. They've got two things. The Republicans are stuck with one tradition. And to me, that's the fundamental alignment that has happened over the 10 years. 
It's not only a political alignment, it's a bit of an intellectual alignment. And that's why I think the Republicans, it's not just a temporary setback, it's gonna be a long road back. And if I could just finish on my favorite subject, which I think is the core subject which did not get talked about uh, enough in this election, but is the core of our historic strength, which I hope Barack Obama will get to. And that is the growth of the skills and, uh, the skills and education of our people. Uh, the United States became the richest country on earth because we were the most educated country on earth. Throughout the 18th and 19th century, we had a year or two of education on basically every other country on earth. Americans were just more educated. We've squandered that lead entirely in the last 30 years. For the first time in, a, in American history, as the boomers retire, a less educated population will be replacing a more educated population. And so to me, we need a, an effort to, to reverse that trend. And we have tried in a thousand ways to reorganize the schools, big classrooms, little classrooms, vouchers, small schools, charter schools, choice, and all of it has had disappointing results because we have tried to, we have given people access to institutions, but we have not given them the internal means to thrive there. And I am an American man, which means I am terrified by thought of emotion. Uh, I, did, I saw some research some neuroscientists did. They took some men, they put them in front of a horror movie and scanned their brains. And then they had them, their wives ask them to talk about emotion and they scanned their brains. And the, the brains are the same. It's, the, it's, the, it's just sheer terror. Uh, the amygdala is lighting up, whatever you call it. Uh, but one of the things we've learned from the research is that people learn from people they love. And just two quick experiments that I think get at this. One was the story of Romanian orphanages. And uh, there were, I don't know what the politically correct word was, but there were kids with low IQs, which we would call retarded or whatever the term is these days. They were in these orphanages. Half of them were adopted. And within four years, their IQs were 60 points higher than the kids who were left. And it wasn't because the adopted mothers had tutored them, because the mothers themselves were retarded and living in a different institution. It was the emotional connection between the mother and child that had rewired the brain. My favorite bit of social science research was done by a guy named Walter Michel, who's now at Columbia. Took uh, four-year-olds, put them in a room, put a marshmallow on a table in front of them, and said, you can have this marshmallow, but I'm gonna come back in 10 minutes, and if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. And this is a very famous experiment, and uh, the first thing you learn is there's not a four-year-old on Earth who can wait 10 minutes. They all eat the marshmallow. <laughs> uh, and he showed me videos of the one little girl trying not to eat the marshmallow, and she's banging her head on the table trying not to <laughs> eat the marshmallow. Uh, uh, one little boy, one day Michelle was using an Oreo cookie, the, Michelle, the little boy, picks up the Oreo carefully, eats out the middle carefully, puts it back on the table. That kid is now a U.S. senator. Um, uh, but the scary thing uh, he learned was that the kids who could wait seven or eight minutes, 20 years later, had much higher college completion rates, and 30 years later, much higher incomes. The kids who could only wait one minute had much higher incarceration rates and much higher drug and alcohol addiction problems. 
And the lesson is that some kids are fortunate to be born in organized homes with the sort of relationships that give them strategies to control their impulses. And if you have those strategies at a very early age, school is doable. If you don't have those strategies, school is pretty frustrating. And so the one thing we know is that people learn from people they love. And the lesson is to surround young people at every second of life and all of us by relationships and community networks. And just to end on that note, I think we've, as a society, had two generations of individualism. The social individualism of the 60s, the economic individualism of the 1980s. And there's much more of a spirit of fraternity and the we're all in this together. And the importance of relationships. And I think Barack Obama does understand that, even though I disagree with him on many issues. He does understand that change. And translating that, that sense of community and relationships and the importance of those things into policy will finally be the, the ultimate challenge over the next four or eight, eight years. So thanks very much. For your time. Thank you, David Brooks. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is journalist and author David Brooks. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially Joe Hognander and the Hognander Family Foundation, primary sponsor of today's forum, Thanks also to SIT Investment Associates for their support. We invite our NPR listeners to join us in the sanctuary at Westminster for our spring 2009 season. Details will be available online at eWestminster.org. And now, David Brooks, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. I wonder if we might begin the question period with where you left off in terms of your comments about the Republican Party and some ideas you have about rebuilding and renewing that, that political tradition, particularly individuals who might take leadership in that role. Well, the, the big debate among Republican circles is between how big to change. There are some people who think that we, uh, we Republicans uh, just need to rediscover our roots. Bush was a big spender, John McCain was a moderate. We need to go back to those Goldwater roots of cutting taxes of limited government. And that's an argument that you don't need to change that much. Uh, and uh, if anybody read the Wall Street Journal, Karl Rove wrote a piece today saying the election results point in that direction. The Republicans just need to do a better job of getting out social conservative voters uh, and they'll win again. I think that's the wrong answer. Uh, I, I think the, the party has lost touch, as I say, with the rising young people. It's not going to win unless they win over Hispanic voters, young voters, these ex-urban voters. You're not going to do that with Barry Goldwater. And so to me, my model is the British Conservative Party. I covered the end of Tory rule, and it, they were just a lost party, uh, as I think the Republican Party is. And it took them 11 years of denial to come back but they came back with the current leader, David Cameron, 
And they came back by saying the Thatcher years were great. She did what she needed to do at her time. But the, now we face different challenges. We face the issues of the rise of China and India. Uh, we face environmental problems. And so we have to be more social. And theirs is a much more communitarian movement, a little less individualistic. And their main argument is labor is the party of the state. We are the party of society. And how do we nurture those bonds? And that feels very different than Margaret Thatcher, but it's that kind of radical reshaping. But the bottom line is something that happens in the Republican Party now is that there is a litmus test. Who is the most conservative? And anybody who is not most conservative is an elitist arugula eater. Um, I was accused, just wrapping up, I was accused by be of being an elitist because I made this essential case by a, a Republican lobbyist who has a column on a website called Politico, and he literally called me an elitist arugula eater. And his author photo in his column is a picture of him on his yacht. Uh, he's got a yacht, but I'm the elitist. But uh, I, So uh, my first words of counsel are, radical change is needed. Don't rule anybody out. As one of the most eloquent voices for the conservative perspective in our country, you have a position on the question of gay marriage that is substantially at odds with most conservatives. Would you please explain your position and how you square it with your conservative beliefs? Uh, yeah, well, I, I uh, not only support gay marriage, I insist on it. Uh, <laughs> um, <coughs> um, I think marriage is a conservatizing institution uh, for both men and women. You should have seen me beforehand. Uh, um, and if two people love each other, A, I don't think uh, they have a choice about their orientation, and B, if they love each other, that love should not have any sense of contingency about it. It should have as much commitment as can be afforded by society. And therefore, gay couples, like straight couples, should be encouraged. And there should be social pressure to marry, not just it should be an option. Here's a question from one of the students in the audience following up on that. Do you think civil rights issues, such as gay marriage or immigrants' rights, will be overlooked with our economic crisis? Will the attention of the nation be deflected from some of these issues? I have to say, when you look at the priorities that are coming down the pike, the economy is first and last right now. Energy policy is obviously very important to Obama, and health care policy. And so some of those issues will take a back burner. Now, in some sense, I regret that, especially in the case of immigration. I think I still th would like to see a comprehensive package. But in other senses, I don't regret that. We have had a, a culture war on some of these issues for a long time, and I wouldn't mind a break from it. Uh, and I, I sometimes think if you talk about the issue less, or at least have a breather from some of these issues, uh, maybe we can address it in a, in a new way in a, in a little while. Several questions about the campaign. Uh, what about ca campaign finance reform to reduce the need for candidates to raise obscene amounts of money? Is there really uh, an opportunity for that in this election? And are candidates beholden to special interests that help fund their candidacy? Well, I mentioned the, the word $600 million. Uh, 
Barack Obama raised a lot of money. And by the way, it was not from small donors. He raised a smaller share of that money from small donors, a smaller share than George W. Bush did from small donors in 2004. He had many more small donors, but he had many, many more large donors. And so he just raised a ton of money. And I think we learned two things from that. First, that there were a lot of civic organizations that have talked about campaign finance reform and talked about it when Republicans were out raising Democrats, but lost interest in it when Democrats started out raising Republicans. Uh, the second thing is, and I look at all the problems facing Washington, and frankly, campaign finance reform has, has a negative role. There's no question about it. All the people who are lining up to get federal subsidies, they got access because of the donations and their political power, whether it's the Detroit companies or, God willing, the newspaper people who I hope will also get bailouts as part of this. Uh, but I don't think that's in my top five of what's corrupting Washington. What's corrupting Washington is a team mentality that we're on Republican or Democratic teams and we don't talk to each other. And, and if you haven't been there, you can't, you can't, it's hard to underestimate how little members of the two parties know about each other. I was once at a, something called the Civility Retreat, the Annenberg Foundation threw in uh, a beautiful hotel, the Greenbrier Hotel in West Virginia. And it was to get Republicans and Democrats together in a room for a weekend so they could actually get to know each other. Their families were invited. And I often say the highlight of the retreat was karaoke night with 170 drunk members of Congress. But, um, <laughs> but you went into the dining hall and all the Republicans were sitting over here, all the Democrats over here. It was junior high school. Uh, and breaking that down is the number one thing. And, th and that'll take leadership and that'll, that'll take Barack Obama living up to the postpartisan talk uh, he had during the campaign. And I give him credit in the first step. Uh, for many people, Joe Lieberman, and especially Democrats, Joe Lieberman is a deeply unpopular figure. I happen to think he was by and large following his conscience. And uh, I think Barack Obama's decision not to expel him or purge him was a first step toward breaking down some of the partisanship. Another question from a student that follows on those remarks. How do you think a Democratic majority in both houses as well as in the White House will affect how policy is made and how effective that policy will be? Well, the, the challenge for any president is not the other guys. The other guys are the oppositions, the enemies on your own side. Uh, and the challenge for President Bush was his own committee chairman. It's easy to say no to people from the other side. It's very hard to say no to your own committee chairman. And this is not a, uh, this is not a Democratic or Republican thing. It's not a liberal or conservative. Committee chairmen have their own interests. They want to spend money on their own projects. And they want certain things that are not in the national interest. And the president has to say no. And so dealing with those committee chairmen in a time of high budget deficits will be a supreme challenge for Obama. And I think that's why he named Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. Now, some of you may know Rahm. Every reporter in town knows Rahm very well. He is, um, if you see him, he's, he lost his middle finger in a, a deli accident. Not very glamorous, but he lost his middle finger in Obama jokes. In losing his middle finger, he was rendered mute. He is a profane, tough guy uh, and a very realistic, pragmatic person. And I think he'll be there 
to say no to committee chairman, and that'll be a, a very difficult challenge because there's a lot of pent-up demand for a lot of things that a lot of Democrats want done. It can't all be done at once. Another question from a student. The best questions that are coming in are from our Minnesota high school students. They're so sharp. This one, ha this one has a title, Drill Baby Drill. <laughs> Is a democracy capable of making difficult and disciplined decisions for the, for the future and greater good, such as energy conservation? I hear a lot about energy replacement, next to nothing about downsizing or energy conservation. Um, <clears throat> another uh, golden Twin Cities moment, Drill Baby Drill. Uh, <laughs> The sad fact is that both uh, Barack Obama and John McCain ran essentially pain-free campaigns. Uh, neither, I think, called for sacrifice. Uh, Obama promised tax cuts for 95% of the American people. Uh, and in the energy plan, it was addition. And so I'm not sure I would look for too much sacrifice. And this is why when I mentioned how tough it is to do energy and uh, health care all at once. Let's just take the energy plan. Uh, we've had a debate over 30 years which has taken us nowhere where the Republicans want to expand existing energy sources like oil and coal and, and Democrats want to invent a magical new energy source over the horizon which will be plentiful and good for the environment. And I think Obama and McCain actually did virtuous work in bringing these two approaches together. Basically, let's try everything. But I would say two things are outstanding and will be tough. First, conservation measures. And second, a cap and trade system that raises costs on fuel. That would be hard to get through the Senate if there were 100 Democratic senators and hard in the, South, the House if there were 435 House Democrats. But that is an essential part of an energy plan, raising the cost on fossil fuels. And it'll be a supreme challenge to get that through because this country, and it's not the politician's fault, it's the country's fault. Uh, we want something for nothing. And that's been our policy for decades. And it, how do you break that? It'll take a sort of political courage we haven't seen and we didn't see in the campaigns. Number of questions about the economic crisis facing the country. Would you say, from your point of view, that the principal cause of our economic downturn is the lack of regulation? And would you think William F. Buckley would agree with your opinion? <laughs> uh, well, I don't think, uh, I have a, a, a direct line to Bill uh, here in my pocket. Uh, he has passed to another world, but he's still got an email, so he's, um, uh, uh, I don't think it was lack of regulation. I think that was part of the problem. Uh, but uh, part of the, the, some of the institutions that were hit the hardest, Fannie and Freddie, were the most highly regulated. Some of the least regulated hedge funds have been hit the weakest. Highly regulated economies in Europe have been hit harder, as harder, harder than us. So I don't think that was the core issue. I think the essential core issue is that we spent um, a decade or two living beyond our means, funded by Chinese savings. Uh, and that we, we just live beyond our means and that worked great till it didn't. And then it didn't. And now we've just got to start living beyond our means, within our means. Uh, <laughs> this is the supply side answer, keep living beyond your means. Uh, and so I think it's that adjustment. And as I say, I think it was not only 
an economic thing that we could afford to because credit was so cheap, but it was a perceptual thing. We misperceived re risk, and we eroded certain virtues having to do with thrift. When you get, start getting jokes about retail therapy and the tough go shopping and all those t-shirts, it's time to sell your stock uh, because the country's gotten carried away. And so to, that, I think that was the fundamental problem, that the oversupply of savings in places like China and Russia and other places, slopping around the world looking for places to just throw itself, seduced a lot of people into living beyond their means. And that oversupply is now gone. But you're not a foreign policy in America's place in the world. What is your advice to the president-elect to begin to restore America's standing on the international front? How do we go about redefining what America's place in the world should be? Well, I guess the obvious thing is uh, to actually go meet people. Uh, and I, I think Condi Rice has actually done this, but I think paying attention. I've, I've always been struck by how much people just want to be heard and respected. Uh, and I think if he went, that would already be a plus. But the second challenge, there are a series of challenges. There's Iraq where I think he'll have a more gradual withdrawal than maybe many of his supporters would like. There's Afghanistan, which believe me is a morass waiting to happen. Uh, there's the rise of China and India and a series of power struggles. But to me, the, the fundamental uh, challenge he faces is how hard to push American values abroad. And I had one interview with Obama where he started the first half of the interview saying how much he wanted to use the U.S. as a force for freedom and the promotion of human rights. And then the second half of the interview, he talked about how much he admired the foreign policy of the first President Bush, which was notable for many things, but the promotion of freedom and human rights was not among them. And so I had two halves of an interview, and I had to write it up. I didn't know which side Obama believed in, maybe both. But reality will be a testing uh, for that. And the first uh, test will involve Iran. Many of the people in his administration, or who will be in his administration, were young men and women in the Carter administration. And they saw what happened when Iran undermined a democratic administration, and they want to make sure that never happens again. And so I suspect they'll be surprisingly tough on Iran, which means being surprisingly aggressive with China and Russia. But whether that can be effective, I'm a little dubious about. But I, I do think Iran will be a major early challenge. Another question from one of the students in the audience. How do you think Obama will stand up to tough international issues, like the Russian missile threat, for instance? That, uh, one little story to horrify everybody about how government actually works. This is a story that has been made public, so I'm not re revealing anything. Putin comes to the White House, sees Barney, Bush's dog, uh, says, Nice little dog you got there. A couple of years later, McCain comes to the Moscow. Putin says, you want to see my dog? A gigantic big hound comes out. Putin says, bigger and stronger than Barney. Uh, so basically, world affairs is in the hand of, of junior high school students. That's, uh, and, and no, I do think the rise of Russia, and more than that, the rise of a, a sort of autocratic very self-confident autocratic state. There was a sense democracy was the wave of the future. The Chinese, and in particular the Russians, think that's not true. Autocracy is the wave of the future. And they're spreading out trying to challenge that. And, and frankly, the, the Georgia situation was very complicated, but Obama's response was a, a little muddled at first. 
And I have a friend named Bob Kagan who's written a book arguing that we're, in the, we're about to enter great power rivalries again. Looking like the 19th century where places like China, India, Iran, Pakistan, they seek to have hegemony over their areas. And America's role will be to try to balance each of these great regional great powers. That'll take a level of Machiavellian toughness, which we haven't seen yet. Our final question, what do you say to the students in our audience and those perhaps listening by radio uh, about the future of American democracy, what you have learned from uh, being a close observer of the recent election, what you might advise them as they consider perhaps a career in politics? Uh, first, you guys are our salvation. Uh, if you ever want to feel good about America, study the demographics of people under 30. It's an incredibly hardworking, wholesome generation. If you look at... Um, <clears throat> Uh, if, you, if you look at uh, crime rates down 70%, divorce rates for people under 30 are much lower than divorce rates for people over 30 after the same number of years of marriage, teenage pregnancy down a third, uh, people do all these community service that young people do spontaneously. I have a friend at GW University who says of his students' community service, I don't know where these kids find lepers, but they find them and they read to them, uh, which is... Uh, uh, so you guys are all going to have the biggest midlife crisis in human history in about 10 years. But it, until then, uh, it's an incredibly wholesome and collective generation. And so I would just say, first, be as responsible as you've been. Secondly, do go into politics. I have many friends in Washington who've served in government and are now back in the private sector. I know very few of them who don't talk about their government service more than anything. It's an intense, demanding field of endeavor in which every 15 seconds you're making a decision that can affect huge things. And uh, it's an intoxicating and a very noble profession that we sometimes dump all over. Uh, but it, we should be reminded of that from time to time. So anyway, thank you again for your Thank time. you, David Brooks. <laughs>